Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. and host of the Petronas Podcast. Welcome back to the Petronas Podcast. This is episode 54. I just did a uh, podcast recording with David Ramsa Wood with Hot Take of the Day, and I thought I would just jump online and sort of do some topics. There's a lot going on in the world um, right now. I mean, I, I always say that, but it's, it's really an unprecedented time. Um, so I'll probably title this podcast Unprecedented uh, Volatility. It is Tuesday, August 2nd, 2022. Um, right now, we're seeing WTI at 95.78. That is up from, I, I had actually seen October futures look at 92 yesterday. Um, Brent is 101.91. That's up a couple bucks as well. Nat gas is 7.89. Uh, Dutch TTF, we're looking at a whopping almost $61 an MCF or, or an MMBTU right now. And the 30-year, the 30-year mortgage rate we've seen come down to, um, it's come down to nearly 5%. It's 5 0.05% as you're seeing on CNBC. And that's because the 10-year yield, which is um, which largely tracks with, with uh, mortgage prices, the 10-year yield has seen pressure um, coming down. It's at 271. But so when the 10-year yield comes down, that usually helps with a with a 30-year mortgage rate. And we'll get into that and talk about that uh, for a little bit. So what I would like to do and talk about today is sort of what's going on with oil prices. I want to touch base on what's happening within um, Nancy Pelosi. The Speaker of the House has touched down in um, Taiwan, so she has actually visited Taiwan. And so if you've seen uh, Asian stock markets or the stock market in general, there's a lot of tension with that right now. And then I would like to get into talk about Walmart's earnings call, um, you know, recession, 9.1% inflation that we saw. Um, I want to touch base on Liberty Oilfield uh, or Liberty Energy's earnings call and a couple things that came out um, today within or last few days we've seen from the Federal Reserve, from the New York Fed, we've seen um, updated numbers on U.S. households. And we, we've also seen some stuff from, from earnings calls from companies like Exxon um, talking about the state of the market. So um, Exxon had a few really great charts in terms of refining capacity and, and prices, which I think are excellent. Um, that I would like to get into. So to just top this off, I think right now what we're seeing where we saw pressure on oil prices, when you've seen that pressure last on oil prices in the last couple of weeks, that has really been concerns about economic growth, concerns about a recession, concerns about the, the health of the economy, health of the consumer, and how much they're actually you know, buying um, crude oil. We've seen prices come down. We've, uh, you know, Brian Deese with the uh, U.S. White House, um, with the Biden administration, has been bragging about you know, lower fuel prices. Um, and largely those lower fuel prices, part of it, we are seeing a, we saw a peak basically in gasoline, um, not just gasoline, but U.S. petroleum products, petroleum supplies that you see from the EIA. We saw that peak in December of last year, and that's kind of come down, not dramatically, but it's come down since then. And, and July is usually a very resilient uh, driving month, and that has actually, we saw uh, gasoline demand come off in July, partly because that's when we were seeing um, oil prices really peak. So that's been part of, you know, recession worries and concerns and actually just health of the consumer. That's weighing on oil prices. I think you have to, I mean, obviously traders are part of that, but watching oil prices and seeing, you know, where they go is going to be a, a very big deal. I really think we're going to see oil prices lower towards the end of the year as the economy. I mean, geopolitical volatility can certainly keep oil prices up, but I think we're going to see oil prices come down overall from a demand standpoint. Um, obviously, you know, natural gas has been, that has been surging. So U.S. natural gas also went up um, because of, 
we saw that um, the Freeport facility, the Freeport LNG export facility, um, assuming that they were going to come online a little quicker. Um, so that helped prices uh, a few weeks ago. But really, it's been about uh, Russia not increasing those flows. So that 20% flow of, of, of gas, so basically the Nord Stream 1 pipeline was at um, when they when Russia put that pipeline at maintenance and then they brought that back online. It started at 40% and then they reduced that to 20%. So um, Europe is without is, is very low in natural gas and that's why we're seeing not just U.S. prices but obviously Dutch TTF prices come up considerably. So it, right now what we're seeing in this recent surge in oil prices is that um, folks were concerned about recession and everything but and with a U.S. GDP print that came came in negative for the second quarter as well as the first quarter so it is a technical recession. But now we're, everyone's looking to the OPEC meeting and saying that, you know, Saudi Arabia probably is not going to increase output, even though Biden asked for it. And that that's why we're seeing oil prices come up a little bit and, and probably just geopolitical volatility and, and, and tension. So with that, with all that geopolitical volatility and those tensions, the biggest thing on the market today is, I think, uh, the biggest thing weighing on folks is that is that Russia has reduced those supplies to Europe. Um, we are seeing s really serious and significant um, implications for Germany and for Europe uh, as a whole. Um, they've had very uh, unseasonably high temperatures over the summer um, in the past several weeks. Those are coming down a little bit, but but not too great. And I was listening to BBC and they were entering, interviewing folks in Spain. And I was talking about this on, on David Ramson Woods podcast, but very interesting is that, so in Spain, um, you, they're interviewing folks who are, are, you know, trying to beat the heat um, and what they're doing, they're saying, you know, well, you could go to a mall and you could, you basically cool off. Well, Spain has instituted um, caps for um, air, they call it air con, air conditioning. They've in, in put in caps for how, how much you can cool or have the air conditioning for temperatures. And so 27 degrees Celsius is that cap, and that is equates to 80.6 degrees Fahrenheit. So that means your air conditioning can only go to 80.6 degrees Fahrenheit. That's pretty significant when it's already hot out and you're trying to cool off. Um, and then really, really even more significant is that they have capped the, uh, the heating temperatures, which come winter, to 19 degrees Celsius, which is only 66.2 degrees Fahrenheit. I think that's really, really serious from a health standpoint. Um, we saw that, you know, and I mentioned this before on, on lots of podcasts, is that the European Central Bank came out, you know, a, over a year ago and said that um, when they were talking about the energy transition, they were talking about inflation. They were saying they were willing to accept higher bouts of inflation because they were looking through the energy transition. And they were saying then that, that consumers were not were not adequately, you know, um, heating their homes because that, you know, the average, a, a lot of folks within Europe were not adequately heating their homes because of the cost. So I think that's that's a really big deal that's, that's very, very significant. So on top of that in Europe, what we're seeing is a, I mean, we've seen Olaf Scholz, the chancellor of Germany, basically uh, he's advocated and they're looking to institute this, uh, and I'm not sure if it's, it's fully been Im implemented, but they're, they're trying to institute a 15% cut of natural gas consumption within Europe uh, because of these reduced flows on, on Nord Stream um, into Europe from Russia. The real difficult difficulty with that is that Germany, they are pass-through countries, so they take in a lot of natural gas from Europe and then they pass it on. But they are, they are not, um, I mean, they're the single biggest consumer of natural gas from Russia. So the dependence on Russia is far more significant than other countries. And so they're asking the whole of Europe to take in less natural, or use le less natural gas. And so part of what Spain is doing is trying to comply with that. Now, I believe that's only a 7% reduction when Chancellor, the Chancellor of Germany in Europe is asking for a 15% reduction. And the ramifications of that I think are really, really big. And that, yes, this is, uh, 
we're, we're seeing these high prices and the, those are probably going to be maintained, but it's really about supplies, whether you can access supplies. And so if you're trying to institute these reductions, if you actually, if industries and companies are complying with that, you're going to see um, industries not with less power, which means they're producing less, which means the knock-on effects to the economy are going to be producing less output, producing less components. So you're going to have job losses. You're going to have real serious ramifications to the economy. We've already seen the um, utility, the provider, utility provider Uniper has gone, um, has basically Germany has come in and taken a 30% stake in this this company. This The uh, the government of Germany has taken a 30% stake in this company. And I think that's the very, very beginning of what we're going to see in terms of serious, serious energy crises in Europe. And I, I think it's, it's important to point out that before all of this was taking place, um, this was taking place on the back of before Russia actually was meddling with flows out of out of the pipe uh, out of Nord Stream. Um, we were seeing energy crises in Europe, and I've talked with clients about this. It's been in presentations, and I've talked on the podcast about it a lot. But we've seen um, we saw basically UK and Europe as a whole um, have issues with energy last fall. And so, if you remember when oil prices did their first ratcheting up, basically la last October, where they went to eighty dollars a barrel. That was on the back of a lot of fuel switching. So that was when we saw a lot of you know, folks in Europe actually switch their power plants from, if they could, they were switching their power plants over from, if they were using natural gas, they started using oil. And so we had about a million barrels a day that was estimated, maybe more, maybe less, in terms of people were switching from natural gas to oil. And obviously at $60 an MCF, oil prices are significantly cheaper. So if you could have done that, you probably already have done it. So there's probably not much there. But that was a big push for an uh, additional, additional demand on the oil side to help propel oil prices forward. And so from the natural gas standpoint, it was cheaper. Now it's, this is really about a, a supply, you know, being able to actually get that supply and the ramifications for that. But I do think it's important to point out that that, so that happened sort of as we were seeing serious energy crises within, within Asia, particularly within China, um, where we, you know, last fall, if you remember, we had cities that were without power for, for weeks on end, for months actually, that a lot of folks didn't hear about uh, because they had coal shortages. Um, and they had, you know, 17% of China's grid is hydropower, and they didn't have enough, they didn't actually have enough rain. And then that solar and wind um, was really cumbersome because in really hot heat, you don't have enough, you know, when it's really, really hot outside, often the wind doesn't blow. Um, and, you know, yeah, that, that can work for the sun, but the problem is in, in Europe, and I know at least for the UK, they didn't actually have enough sun, so solar, um, solar power generation was down. So what happened was, Last fall, you saw solar power generation down in, in the UK. You saw wind power generation down. And so all, all renewable power generation actually was down, even though you had the capacity. And so they were drawing really hard on what natural gas they had. And that was really the point where we realized they don't have a lot of spare natural gas. They don't, Europe typically does not actually have a lot of storage for natural gas. So in the US, we are blessed where we, we actually have, you know, we're, everyone's looking at the storage report every week. So we actually store it. We have inventories. They don't really have that in Europe, and they've relied heavily on those pipelines, heavily on those supplies. Um, if you look at the Energy Information Administration, and I show these these slides a lot in my presentations, you can see they, they put out um, their daily, you know, they do a daily thing, which is absolutely fantastic. And um, they have one on, if you look at European gas consumption and production, you can see that their production in Europe, overall, Europe and the UK, production for gas has really declined over the last 10 years considerably, hence, you know, their vulnerability to imports. Um, but their consumption has really stayed flat. And so when you don't have storage and you don't have infrastructure, you're not increasing, you know, your production. And COVID, you know, really helped exacerbate that because you saw um, a lot of, I mean, there was issues with getting people to offshore in the North Sea. 
Um, they had maintenance that they needed to do that wasn't being done. So you've seen a lot of lags from COVID help build up on the gas side. And you saw natural gas prices were just so low um, that the, the fears and concerns about natural gas and weren't really there. And this is, was really, I think, exacerbated by really intense green policies agenda agendas within Europe that helped helped exacerbate all these problems. So taken together, you know, that was happening before. And now you have obviously the war in Ukraine and reduced actually flows of, of natural gas into Europe. And so you truly have an energy crisis. I think folks have talked about it before, um, but this is really, really serious. And I think it's one of the single biggest things we're going to see what could really impact the global economy is, is this European energy crisis, which is obviously a, a global energy crisis. Um, and I think in Germany, we're, we are already hearing and seeing that you know, what's going on on the nuclear side, I'm not quite sure. I assume that, you know, any nuclear capacity that Germany was planning to roll off, because um, they were planning to, to uh, take those out of commission, um, I'm assuming that they will try to delay those as much as possible. Um, when it comes to coal, Germany has a very significant coal constituency up, I believe, in the, in the northeast part of Germany. And it is several thousand jobs. It's still several coal mines. And um, the reason they've maintained this is they don't talk about it a ton, and that's why the, the grid is still, still over 30% coal is the, the German grid. Um, and so in many ways, that's actually probably very positive in terms of an energy security standpoint because they're producing and supplying you know, their own power in, the, in that regard. Um, but it's sort of survived all these green policy agendas because they have a very strong constituent, very strong political base within the area that's advocated very strong for those jobs um, and using the use of that coal. So they have a chunk of it, um, assuming that they will try to ratchet up production if possible. But it, we, we are hearing, and you're hearing on BBC and others, that they are planning to basically ramp up coal-fired power generation in the winter. And I would assume that we're going to see that start um, as soon as possible, because you're going to try to offset any natural gas that you're using now and try to try to save that. So that's, that's going to be very tricky. Um, but I think it's really case in point in terms of sort of the energy security thing, which I've tried to talk a lot about in terms of um, if you're thinking about you know, energy security, um, and you're thinking about what would the trajectory of natural gas demand and trajectory of, of, of coal, uh, obviously, n Europe not getting enough natural gas from Russia is going to throw a kink into, you know, what the future of natural gas demand looks like in, in within Europe. But I think when it comes to coal, um, the decline that, you know, projections we see out of the International Energy Agency are just completely unrealistic. And I would say that I would, I would bet a lot of money on, you know, coal, coal, um, consumption being significantly higher than almost every forecast has said they would be in the last couple of years. So I think coal production or coal consumption is going to um, be very, very high um, over the next several years and continue because it is simply very, very stable. And, and what we're being taught from this war in Ukraine and these, uh, and these energy crises and geopolitical vulnerabilities is how stable coal is. And um, come this winter when, when temperatures really cool off, um, and I think Europe will have significant geopolitical vulnerabilities. That's going to be a real problem for them, and I think they're going to choose to actually produce um, energy through coal uh, because that's all they have. And I, we will see the importance of that. And I think that brings us that brings us to China. I mean, I sort of have a running thread on China throughout, you know, my presentations and podcasts. But I would say that you know, on China, what we're seeing, I mean, China has increased coal production by 100 million tons in the past five years. So they're nearing about 400 million tons of coal production. Um, that's really, really meaningful, not just in the context of energy security, but what they actually want to do and why they want the energy security and why they want to be, you know, stable from everyone else. But I think in terms of how much 
crude they're getting from, they're getting about 2 million barrels a day crude from Russia. You know, they import roughly 10 million barrels a day crude. They produce about 4.5 million barrels a day. China does. And so about 2 million barrels a day right now is coming from Russia, give or take. There, we are seeing increased flows on the on pipelines on the on the natural gas side. They're getting a ton of grain. The, the, the purchases of China, you know, the, the flows of, of money from China to Russia are, are massive and have really ramped up in the last several months um, before the war in Ukraine and during the war in Ukraine. Um, but when it comes to energy, I think when you look at what China is importing, you're getting about two million barrels a day from Saudi Arabia, a million and a half barrels a day from Iran. So right there, you can just see that over half of their imports are from countries that they have very good relationships that they rely on. Um, and the reason this is all relevant um, is because right now, you know, Taiwan is a is a significant issue, um, not just a significant issue geopolitically and, and what it means for China and, and what's been going, you know, statements that Biden has made over his year and a half um, in office. But really, right now, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, has touched down in Taiwan. So she's in Taiwan as we speak, or maybe she's left. But um, Taiwan produces a massive amount of semiconductors. So there's some excellent podcasts that you can listen to on this. But you know, the majority of the world's semiconductors is coming out of this, this is coming out of Taiwan, is coming out of actually one company. And so any volatility in Taiwan, any in what I mean is any any volatility in, in the Taiwan's rates, any ability to, you know, the impact of supply chains on just getting these these semiconductors out is going to impact chips, is going to impact everything that chips go into. So we're talking high-end chips, obviously, for phones and, and, and computers, um, but we're talking across businesses that would have a significant impact. So if you're looking for sort of a, a black swan um, event, that could certainly be one of them that is another thing that's sort of hurting the economy. So it's, it's absolutely something to watch for. I know that you know, a, a lot of academics and a lot of um, policy folks in D.C. and think tanks, when the war in Ukraine began, there was a lot of analogies saying, you know, is this what could happen in Taiwan? And I think, you know, it was discounted by many that, it, you know, it's not the same thing. And, and it isn't. It, you know, the Ukraine and Taiwan are, are two different things. But if you read the joint statement that, um, and I've talked about this a lot in previous podcasts as well, but if you read that joint statement between Russia and, and China that, that they um, – put out in, on February 4th, the war in Ukraine was February 24th. If you read that joint statement, it talks about there are no areas of forbidden cooperation, and it does also talk to basically both countries supporting each other in their territorial um, ambitions. And so obviously China has a significant territorial ambition um, to reunify Taiwan with, with China. And that's been something that's really big where you've seen the Biden administration, you've seen Biden talk multiple times of um, what they say is, you know, people have called goffs. You, you say, he, he basically says something on Taiwan, which says we will defend them if something happens. And then his, you know, folks within his team basically walk that back or try to walk that back. And this has been difficult for the administration and folks in Washington because Nancy Pelosi has seen, has actually received a lot of bipartisan support on this trip to Taiwan um, as basically going to, she's one of the highest, I mean, she's actually in office, so I believe she visited 25 years ago, but the highest, or she believes, you know, decades ago, but she is the highest ranking official um, to visit China um, in, or to visit Taiwan in um, over two decades. So basically in 25 years, she's the highest sitting uh, official to actually visit. And I, that is significant from a, um, uh, whether it, it's just a, a visual standpoint, whether it's um, it's meaningful. It, China has responded pretty aggressively. We saw the stock market, we saw Asian stock market, uh, you know, off kilter and uh, some some fear trades going on last night. But I think China's response to this, we will see them. They're, they're already saying they're planning um, increased air stuff going on above Taiwan. So we'll see. 
we will see increased flight traffic. We will see all kinds of military stuff, testing, you know, um, and just basically, I think it's it's not just flyovers, but essentially these are international waters, which China deems theirs. Um, and I think the goal of reunification is something that will probably come into for it. If you've studied China, if you're looking at what's really going on within China, you know, things like things like energy security, things like food security, things like the war in Ukraine, their their tight relationship with Russia, what's going on, um, their takeover of Hong Kong during COVID, the mass lockdowns that we've seen, the Institute of Controls that we've seen during COVID, very similar to the Institute of Controls we've seen um, in the province of Xinjiang with uh, the internment of these Uyghur Muslims. That's all coming together, and I do think that um, there are probably scholars that are really seeing this. This is, this is a much bigger deal than people realize, and so the issues with Taiwan are not something that you know we can solve in a, in a podcast, and I would certainly like to talk about it more and get some experts on here, um, but it's something to watch, and it's the reason why you're seeing volatility in the market today. So next, I would like to talk about what, I mean, U.S. inflation rate has been very, was very serious. We saw, we saw last month a, um, the U.S. inflation rate come out at 9.1%. That's you know extremely high for a developed democratic country. Um, obviously, we're seeing inflation across board in, in multi in across Europe in the UK. They are not at nine percent yet, but they're coming up very very closely. A, a, a lot of this is energy, but it's not just energy. So, electricity prices are up thirteen point seven percent. That's really really serious for the U.S. consumer. But we are also seeing um, we're seeing energy prices up. We are seeing electricity prices up. We're seeing net gas but we're seeing food prices. And I think, you know, we, we'll talk about the Walmart earnings call in just a second, but that food inflation is, is really, really serious for not just the American consumer, but the global consumer. And so when we hear about food and energy crises, we do have a food and energy crisis. And energy, um, and pr particularly natural gas and the production of fertilizer, and fertilizer for, for um, food is a huge component of that. Um, but we've also had just food pricey, we're, we've had food inflation in the U.S. Well, you know, partly because of, of so much stimulus measures in the U.S. Um, and, you know, entitlement programs and things that we were sort of leading on food inflation. For, for good or for bad, I'm not making a judgment call on that. But the reality is, is that when you increase um, entitlement programs, it, leads, it typically leads to inflation. And that probably wouldn't have been so evident if we didn't have so much stimulus in the system. And so $27 trillion in global economic stimulus between fiscal and monetary policy um, and the more dollars in the system than the Fed has ever printed is, is really, really serious. And so leading into that, it's something that the, the Federal Reserve is having a really hard time dealing with. I mean, they came out last week and talked about a, you know, increasing the, the Fed increased rates by 75 basis points. So, um, and, and that talk was pretty hawkish in my opinion. I mean, I think the Fed actually coming out and saying, you know, if you listen to the Fed speech and you listen to Jerome Powell, there are a few scary things he mentioned. And one is that he mentions food directly. He mentions that consumers are actually eating, people are actually eating, consuming less food uh, because of the cost of food. If you look at the actual inflationary data, you can see that food at home is far more expensive than food out. So if you're going out to restaurants, the reason that is is because restaurants are afraid. Um, you know, obviously companies like McDonald's, um, Olive Garden, companies like that are, are if, if you're catering to a certain consumer and if you ratchet those prices up too much too quickly, you know, you're going to lose that consumer. Um, so those companies actually, you know, McDonald's may be a company that actually does quite well or low on, on, you know, cheaper food because people are looking for, people are actually looking for few food at a better price. Um, and if, if you go to the grocery store and you're looking at the cost of bacon, I mean, it's out of this world. You can see on inflationary data from Bureau of Labor Statistics that our beef 
our beef prices are out of control. So you can actually, they break down eggs and milk and, and staple products and you can see these prices. So they've accelerated considerably um, and are really, really high. And actually many of these, as uh, if you look at 2008, 2007, 2008 levels and then you look now, many of these are well over those prices, including you know electricity prices have just continued to ratchet up. So those are, I mean, that those levels of inflation are, are really significant in the US, but they're significant abroad and have you know, huge consequences for geopolitical volatility, for volatility, obviously, just accessing, you know, food and fuel in Europe, but I think abroad as well, having a food crisis of, you know, in the U.S., we're, the prices may go up, but we're going to have access to grain because we produce a lot of it, whereas in other places around the world, that goes the same for natural gas as well, but in Africa, in certain countries that have to import a lot of this, that's, that is really problematic, and actually, a lot of these countries in Africa and Middle East that produce grain aren't, are having trouble accessing fertilizer um, for their crops. So that's it's it's a double-edged sword and it's really complicated that they can't produce this stuff because they haven't had the fertilizer. Okay, so we're going to switch gears just for a second to bring this back to the inflationary piece and we're going to come back to energy and we'll talk about energy prices, some stuff from Exxon's call and, and energy transition. Um, but if you look at what Walmart said, so last week, you know, we had we had the Fed come out, we had, we've had earnings coming out and lots, lots of stuff has been going on and what you're hearing and seeing in the stock market is that um, you we're seeing this in the 30-year or in the 30-year you know mortgage prices? We're seeing this in the 10-year Treasury yield. And what's happening is that uh, the market and people are saying, "Well, look, the economy is not that good. We actually are seeing a recession." Even though Janet Yellen and um, Jerome Powell are, are saying, you know, and many others in the administration and Biden himself are saying, "We're not in recession." Even though the technical definition of a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative or slower economic growth, which we've seen use GDP data. We actually have that for the first quarter and the second quarter. We're in negative territory. So we are in a technical recession. Um, I'm an economist. I was trained that way. Technical recession, 100%. Um, so even though the, the, what the market is reading that and saying, okay, well, we have this technical recession, which means the Fed is going to have to start actually stop raising rates, and they're going to have to lower rates, and we're going to see this accommodation, and therefore stocks will go up. They're um, very, very inaccurate. So I would not look to stock prices as a gauge of where the economy is at. So they are still way overinflated, um, and they need to come down considerably for where probably the reality of the economy is at. Um, but they're not also, that is a poor interpretation because if you listen to Jerome Powell and you listen to the Fed, what he said was he was talking very, he was very strong on inflation. Now he's extremely late to the party and I've said that multiple times that Jerome Powell has, you know, had, he didn't have job security. He finally got his job security and then he, you know, then he got it and then he got serious about inflation. Of tackling inflation, it became a problem. It is extremely serious that the Fed gets a hold of inflation because you cannot have, they have a, a dual mandate, which is, you know, employment and, and price stability. They don't have price stability and they have very low unemployment, but you cannot have a healthy employment environment going forward if you don't help with inflation. And the reason we're seeing recession in the first place, the reason we're seeing any kind of slowdown or pullback is because of these high prices and what it's doing to the consumer. And we're seeing that in, so if you're, if you listen to the Walmart earnings call, and I, I haven't had a chance to listen to it, I've, I've skimmed through it, but if you heard the craziness from the Walmart earnings call last week, right before actually the Fed talked, it was really serious. You had a lot of commentators talking how, well, the rest of the country might not be in recession, but the bottom 40% the people who shop at Walmart are. And, you know, there are people, lots of us shop at Walmart that are, I mean, I, wherever you're talking, bottom 40%, middle, middle 50%, 60%, whatever it is, is that the reality is that a lot of, you know, companies like Target and companies like Walmart and, and Dollar Tree and stuff do well in recessions because they're cheaper. And actually the stock should go up. But the problem that we're seeing with Walmart is really case in point of the dynamic complexities that we're facing right now. And that's that 
the consumers at Walmart are buying are don't have enough money to buy anything but food and fuel. So they're fueling up their vehicle and they're buying food. And so we heard multiple. So within the earnings call, we heard about too much inventory. So they had too much inventory, and that's what Jim Cramer and many others were were criticizing them for having too much inventory. But the problem is, is that it's not just okay. So we had too much inventory, and their criticism is that they should have known their consumers better, and they shouldn't have the inventory. Um, and then they're spending all their money on food. And we we heard it in the previous earnings call, but also in this one that the consumer is buying local, like the private brands. They're not buying name brands. They're buying the Walmart brands because they're cheaper. So that's and that's happening on the food side. So um, the, the it, it tells you the state of these consumers and the state of the economy. If you're living paycheck to paycheck, and the prices are going up so much, you're switching your your brain consumption. And the impact is that they're just not buying these discretionary items. That's why companies like Netflix, you know, several quarters ago, or a couple quarters ago, which we talked about in previous podcasts, is that you know people were starting to to change their their behavior patterns of they're not they had a decline in consumers for the first time decline subscribers for the first time ever um and that was a couple of quarters ago so if we're looking at this now and saying we're finally seeing this at walmart where you know the consumers at walmart are really you know they're buying they're not buying the discretionary stuff and i think that you we're going to continue to see that you're going to continue to see that pain um that's that's happening in those places because of that inflation so obviously, you know, Walmart missed on earnings and, and that was part of it, but it was really, I mean, I, I truly believe it's like, if, if you're looking for the health of the economy, you're looking for bellwethers, you need to look at companies like Walmart. And the reason why is because when they say things like this, so they say, you know, quote, while we experienced high levels of inflation in our international, in international markets over the years, U.S. inflation being this high and moving so quickly both in food and in general mer merchandise is unusual. We'll control what we can control, reduce our inventory level, and keep prices as low as we can, especially on opening price point food items while improving our profit performance. So what Walmart's saying, and I'm not saying they're completely right in this, but they're saying they have inflation in food and fuel. They also talk about in shipping containers and what they're doing. So the food and fuel prices that they are seeing, that they're trying to control, um, but, but they're pointing to the fact that they are never seeing these levels of of rapid inflation in in the US in I, you know Walmart the, the leaders of Walmart obviously haven't experienced it so um, what the impact of their business is significant I, I think that's really being underappreciated by the market right now um, so and on top of that so I mean we, we can pause on that and I'm sure I'll be I'm gonna be talking about you know Walmart earnings and, and lots of other earnings calls including Target and others um, in next podcast but I think that's really important to think about um, we also had a New York Fed came out with their quarterly report on U.S. household debt and credit report, and we did see an increase. So we are seeing over 16 trillion. You know, we had ratcheted up over a trillion dollars in debt um, in just in 2021 alone, and now we are over 16 trillion in household debt in the U.S. That has come up. We saw credit card debt come up, and we saw mortgage debt obviously go up. Um, but so non-housing debt is 4.45 trillion, and housing debt is nearly 12 trillion dollars. So huge amount of, of household debt um, based being housing debt because of the high prices of these homes for the U.S. consumer. You know, lots of debates that I've had on, you know, the health of these mortgages and what they actually look like. But it's it's certainly something to watch just because if you're looking at the size of a mortgage in 2007, 2008, the size of that mortgage was around $200,000 versus the size of a mortgage now is up to $450,000. So it, the reason it's so relevant is not that there's not the health of that mortgage isn't great, but it's that if you have a dual income family and two people are making those payments, you know, if one person loses their job, those payments might seem really high. Um, I think, and I also think that's really important that a lot of those these folks have also not had to pay off 
you know, these people have not had to pay off uh, student loans. And so student loan debt is not, we're not factoring that in in terms of what, what does the consumer actually look like. So when we hear about how healthy the employment side is, how healthy the job sector is in the U.S., and that's why we're not in recession, when we hear about the health of the consumer, I think the health of the consumer is really masked by the stimulus and fiscal lags and part of the reason why we haven't seen enough people go back to work, and that's creating and exacerbating the supply chain problems and inflationary problems that people have seen. Um, but it's also that those, so those fiscal lags are really serious, but that the, the not having to... Um, the, the actual not feeling the employment side yet. So we're seeing, um, we're hearing companies like Tesla and Ford and others talk about, you know, curbing employment or job layoffs. We've seen it from Microsoft, Google, Apple. I mean, you name it, everyone has, Goldman Sachs has all come out and started talking about job losses, but the average person isn't feeling it. When they start feeling it, I think this is going to change. This is going to change course really, really quickly. So if you break down this debt levels, we haven't obviously seen student loans, you know, considerable increases, um, but student loans is 1.6 trillion, auto loans are 1.5 trillion. So, you know, I do think it's serious when people are talking about the severity of student loans, and those are really high, right? The, the, the interest rate on those are really high. The government ha could do more in terms of reducing interest rate on those loans or making sure they pay off the principal than just creating a moral hazard issue and, and forgiving all those loans. But if we're talking student loans being an issue 1.6 trillion, I think we do have to think about that's, that's far more about voting and voters and getting those votes than it, because auto loans are 1.5 trillion in debt. That's household debt is auto loans 1.5 trillion. And that is not healthy debt. That is not, these are not healthy because we have a lot of subprime auto loans. If you have a pulse, you can buy Escalade. I think the auto debt is really, really huge. We have less than a trillion dollars, just shy of, a tr uh, of $0.89 trillion in credit card debt and uh, about uh, half a, less than half a trillion in other debt. So that's the non that's the non housing side. So those debt levels are, you know, people keep watching that. We don't see massive delinquencies, but I do think, you know, we are hearing across the board where payday loan things are increasing, you know, quick quick loans, people getting cash. We're also and again, not across the board, not every single person's doing that, but a lot of folks are doing that. Folks living paycheck to paycheck, I think that's extremely serious. And we are seeing credit card debt obviously increase as well. And that's something to watch closely is your types of consumers, your types of credit card debt. Okay, and lastly, I'm going to close with talking about, I'm going to talk about, you know, we've seen earnings season come in for Exxon, so I will be getting into these in, in podcasts, but, you know, Exxon has come in. I would say that it is interesting, you know, to listen to Exxon and actually hear what they're saying in terms of, the, t the tone is a little bit different. In, in, instead of being, you know, very pro-energy transition and talking about net zero and talking about board issues and activism, you know, we have seen them pivot a little bit because they came out with their, you know, the Biden administration wrote them a letter, which was really about uh, really more addressing, you know, oil prices and refining on the refining side and, and what was going on there. And and so Exxon actually has come out with a letter in response to that. We heard a little bit about that in the earnings call, and they talked specifically in the earnings call about their increase of their increasing refining capacity. They also talk about natural gas lots. So if you're looking for like long-term trends and themes of what oil companies are doing now and how it's going to impact the future is Exxon is talking about natural gas production volumes and increasing LNG, but that's a couple years out. That's a few years out. Same for volumes. They are talking about increasing, you know, how much they've increased Permian growth from now, um, or I'm sorry, from 2021 to 2022. Essentially, they're expected to see a 25% year or 25% year over year increase. Now we're seeing, and we heard Chevron saying they've increased their rig count. They're basically at 10 rigs. So everybody's incrementally increased their rig count. And obviously, if you look back, I mean, it w Exxon was drilling with 55 rigs pre-COVID, um, sometimes 57 rigs. And we've seen that never just come to a fraction of that, you know, to, uh, I mean, just to, to single digit numbers. Um, and obviously they're coming, everybody's coming back a little bit, but they're not going to come back to a 55 levels. They also don't need that. So Chevron made sure to point out that the amount of, um, 
they talked about infrastructure spend and the fact that they won't have to be adding all these tank batteries in the future, and they did this at much lower cost, and now they can bring this production on. And they also talked about the fact that their uh, their lateral lengths are not just lateral lengths, but th what they're doing with their rigs is they need half the rigs that they did before, and essentially they need half the frack equipment. They didn't say frack equipment, but they said their their frack efficiency is nearly twice as it was, you know, in, in 2018, and, and they said that essentially for rigs as well. Um, but we are seeing so these are sort of the trends and themes. Uh, but you are hearing justification. You are hearing a little bit of a pushback um, from Chevron and Exxon in terms of what the Biden administration has pushed them on. Are you increasing output? You halt. We heard, you know, questions on their earnings calls about that. But I, I, and I, I will get the, into that in future podcasts. But the, really, the point I want to drive home here is related to what I opened with, and it's the energy and fuel, you know, food crisis that we're talking about. And I think there's two charts that really capture it well. And I'm going to post these on LinkedIn and Twitter so people can see them. But if you know, if you look at um, at Exxon slides on slide four, they had this, um, and I'll, I'll hold this up, and it's in black and white, so you can't see it really well. But they put crude, natural gas, refining margins, and chemical margins, just these bar charts and these dots, and they just show, you know, second quarter 2021, first quarter 2022, second quarter 2022, and 10-year range. And so the bars of the 10-year range are what these prices are, and you can see they're flat across the board, right? So for all these things, for oil prices, for natural gas prices. For refining margins and chemical margins, your 10-year average, right, that's our black bar. And then you see the prices. And you can see, obviously, there's a bump in crude prices. But really, those refining margins, obviously, there's a massive, massive bump um, quarter over quarter. So huge. They were negative, and in, in you had negative refining margins in 2021 and the, uh, because of because of COVID and because people weren't using it. And so that was a massive problem. Now you have very, very positive refining margins, but we'll get to the refining side in a bit. Th so that's really, really important seeing what's going on there, but it's really natural gas prices. And I think that's that's something that people have to realize that's what's going to break the consumer and going to really hurt the US economy and is hurting the global economy, obviously, as we talked about with Europe. But natural gas, the, the bump up in natural gas prices from where it was in the second quarter 21, 2021 to now is massive. And they don't put the prices on it, but it's 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 the ramp up. And that that's really, really huge. Now, if we look at the refining side, and I think that's really, really important that they point out is because that's where they're getting criticism of, you know, what's going on on the refining side. The reason, part of the reason, you know, we've seen a really big bump in prices and a holdup in prices, even with, you know, we, we know that um, Saudi Arabia and we know what UAE is producing. We know that um, OPEC is producing nearly 29 million barrels a day of crude oil. The U.S. is producing nearly 11.7 million barrels a day of crude oil. We know Russia's had a big bump, uh, you know, actually from reducing output, but they're producing, you know, over 10 million, 10 and a half million barrels a day of crude oil. So if we're thinking about why we're seeing, why we had seen such high prices of, of, of oil, a big part of that was the refining side. And you've probably heard that in the U.S. we lost a million barrels a day of refining capacity. Um, but globally, and, and Exxon has a good chart on this as well, is that they, they show, quote, on, this is slide five in their investor presentation that says, industry investment not keeping up with recovering demand. So that's on the oil side. You know, and obviously that's going to be significant for the future. But if we're looking at right now, we're looking at, you know, I mentioned the, you know, what happened in the UK, what was going on last fall within China, you know, weather and everything and how that sort of spurred, you know, the, the switch and transition from, you know, the, the spike in, in demand for crude oil and when we were switching from natural gas and how that sort of led that, that price upward in the $80 range. Um, and then I think now it's really important to realize, you know, when we were seeing $100 a barrel and everything, even though we have flows moving around the world from Russia and those exports being maintained, it, the refining side is really huge. I mean, your product prices, your refined product prices are a big factor of your actual crude oil price, right? That, that, that's what goes on to your gas stations, and that's why we see those prices. So 
we saw um, during COVID a lot of loss of refining capacity. So in the US, we saw a loss of about a million barrels a day. And this chart, it's, it's on slide eight, it's fantastic. Um, it shows the net loss, obviously a net loss of about a million barrels a day. A global net refining capacity changes a million barrels a day, but a total loss was almost, uh, is over three million barrels a day of a total loss of refining capacity. And that's, I, I think that's really, really significant in terms of seeing where those, those price points and pain points are. It's also really important to think about the future. Again, if we have more natural gas production, if the refining capacity comes back online um, and where our demand levels are at. And that's why, you know, those are gonna be huge factors in where prices actually, you know, work out in the wash. You know, and I know, I know the industry is not, you know, we're not hearing a lot of anxiety over oil prices, right? We're not hearing a lot of folks concerned about oil prices dropping. And, and part of that's because they're very well supported by geopolitical volatility. And, um, and we've had this, the resurgent demand coming back from COVID. I, I, you know, I stress this in podcasts and I've stressed this in presentations, the one I gave at Doug, Car Energy and, and, and others and, and to clients is that, you know, we don't want to get a sort of false sense of security of, of where, you know, that demand levels are because this, re this recession, these energy crises, you know, things going on in Taiwan, any of this could really, really curtail oil demand. Um, and I do think important, and I want to bring this to close with Liberty, and I will absolutely be talking about, you know, service companies and Liberty's call at depth. But I, I really want to close this because it's just uh, Chris Wright really nailed this home and did such a fantastic job in, their, in Liberty Energy's second quarter, you know, earnings call. Um, but they say, you know, in the, in the beginning of the call, they say, quote, today, historically low global oil and, and gas inventories, limited OPEC spare production capacity, and a dearth of refining capacity are colliding with increased energy demand. Oil and natural gas demand growth is coming from the post-COVID recovery, et cetera. So back to quote, quote, the greatest risk to our marketplace is a severe recession that leads to a drop in global oil, um, in demand for, for oil and natural gas. A moderate recession typically is only a slowing in the rate of demand growth for oil. So that, that's something really important to point out, and I try to stress to folks is it's that slowing, right? It's that, that slowing of demand that is a really big deal. So if, it, it's a, that if demand for oil and natural gas just slows, that will impact price because the prices usually run up on the ramp of the, the thinking about demand growth. So if that demand isn't growing, even if it's just slowing, or stopping, that, that will impact prices. Doesn't mean they crater, doesn't mean they crash. And I do think we are gonna see the uh, absolute, we're, we're already seeing a slowing in the demand growth. Um, but it's really, do we curtail demand because of, of really serious pains in the global economy? And you can see that when, when your global economy slows, your demand for crude oil slows, and we will, we will see that in China um, because their, their housing side is slowing, and the infrastructure side is slowing, and we will see that in the US if and when the, you know, the housing side really, really slows and we go into a deeper recession. <clears throat> Consumers will fly less and, and we will be building less and trucks will be shipping less stuff around because we'll be buying less. So that's all very real. Now, I think the biggest thing I want to talk about and I want to end with is uh, Chris Wright's comments on the, on the energy transition. And I am super big on this. I've talked about it a ton, you know, a, across my platform, across, you know, the clients that I work with. I, I really do believe that the industry has got to get uh, comfortable with talking about the fact that they are comfortable producing oil and natural gas um, and talking about this oil and natural gas and understanding how vitally important it is for energy security um, and global geopolitical power dynamics. But it's also just really important that as the industry, as you've seen CEOs and industry executives cater to the energy transition rhetoric, it, is, it has been damning um, for what happens in a policy arena and what happens in a regulatory arena and what happens for, you know, from a lobbyist standpoint. So 
you know, there we have to be able to talk about this openly. We have to have leadership in the oil and gas space for, you know, producing the stuff that helps, you know, keep people alive and keep, you know, fueling these homes and, and creating stability for prices for people to actually just go about their day-to-day -day business. And so Chris Wright says, hey, um, this direct quote reading from him, really, really great statement. I'm going to post this all over LinkedIn. I'm going to tweet this and put this out. I think this needs to be, it's something I, I've said in a lot of different words uh, a ton. It's uh, Other folks are saying this, but I think Chris is one of the, the very few publicly traded companies that's saying it this clearly and specifically. And he says, this second quarter earnings call, this was from July 26, 2022. He says, quote, the world is gripped. Um, the world is gripped today by a serious energy and food crisis that is of our own making. It is not, in fact, due to any shortage of available resources. It is due entirely to investment decisions and a growing myriad of barriers to investment in hydrocarbons. The very hydrocarbons without which the modern world is simply not possible. It is admirable, admirable that the public regulators in our industry are keen to improve the quality and cleanliness of our activities. It is not admirable that so many emotionally driven, fact-free impediments to investment have come from government regulation, NGO litigation, and lobbying, and Wall Street, too often equating lower greenhouse gas with better in all cases. The blame for the current energy crisis also falls on our industry for too often compliantly going along with the endless anti-hydrocarbon fashion of today. If it's not for us to speak candidly, honestly, and loudly about the critical role of hydro the critical role hydrocarbons play in the modern world, and the most and most critically for those desiring simply to join the modern world, then who else will play this role? Certainly, it has not been political leaders, activists, academics, or celebrities. It is us that must carry that torch. Otherwise, the immense human damage we see today from the lack of investment in hydrocarbon production and hydrocarbon infrastructure will only be the beginning of a calamitous crisis. End quote from Chris Wright. I think. That is a great way to end the podcast. That is a fantastic quote, and it is something that I spend a ton of time, you know, taking data, taking charts, taking information to really bring people to this point. I think the U.S. production platform is huge. Um, the ability to increase it is huge, but we have so many factors, obviously, impacting that. So with that, I'm going to close. Thank you guys so much for listening. Really appreciate it, and talk to you soon. Bye.